0: Welcome to Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today I'm pleased to interview local author Dr. Mario Del Olio about his recent family memoir, Letters from Italy. Mario has written and published six books. His novels focus on romance, and many explore love through the lens of the gay LGBT community. His latest book, Letters from Italy, chronicles the romance, life, and love of his parents in post-World War II New York and Southern Italy. Letters from Italy won the 2022 Premio Vincenzo Coschetti International Award for Literature and Music. Dr. Dalloglio has conducted and led concert and chamber choirs internationally and domestically and released numerous albums. He holds a Doctor of Sacred Music, a Master of Music and Vocal Performance, and a Master of Religious Education. Mario De Olio is also the Music Director at an independent school in Sonoma County, where he currently resides. Welcome, Mario.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Mario's 2022 Letters from Italy is itself a letter of love to his parents and the family they created in New York. His mother an orphan in Italy, and his father, an immigrant in New York, find each other in photos and words. The original letters, which are translated in the book, speak of a bygone era and show the progression of a love story for the ages. It will make you smile, it will make you cry, and it will give you a vision of a love well-lived. Mario's first reading is the translated letter his father sent to his mother after he saw a photograph of her. Go ahead, Mario.
1: He saw her face for the first time in New York. The photo fell out of the airmail envelope that came from his brother Carlo. Orazio hadn't even read the letter when her smiling face entranced him. Walking beside his brother and his fiance was a beautiful young woman. Her smile and joie de vivre came alive as if it jumped out of the photo from his hometown in Bichelie. He was utterly taken with her. Gazing at the photo, memories of his childhood flooded his mind. The girl from the photo looked awfully familiar. It had to be a sign. He immediately grabbed paper and pen. Dear sister-in-law, congratulations on your engagement. As you know, I'm Carlo's brother. The photo you sent includes a young woman. I believe I know her from my youth. Who is she? What's her name? Would you kindly ask her if I may write to her? She is beautiful, and I would love to correspond with her. He included a note for this beautiful young woman in his letter. Nina read his words and ran right over to her cousin Nicoletta's house. Here, look what you got from America. Read it. It's for you. Me? I don't know anyone from America. What are you talking about, Nina? It's Carlo's brother in New York. He saw your picture and wants to write you. Read it for yourself. Why would I want to read that? I don't even know him. He knows you. He used to see you at the window. That's ridiculous. Why would I want to correspond with someone so far away? What could come of that? I'm not going to read that letter. You can take it back. Suit yourself, Nicoletta. I'll just leave the letter right here. But don't be so rash. Just see what he has to say. Nicoletta stared at the letter after Nina left and shook her head. Why would I want to read a letter from a complete stranger? But her inquisitive nature would not let her be. What harm could come from simply reading it? She was under no obligation to respond. Finally, her curiosity went out. She opened the letter and read Horatio's Declaration of Intent. I pray that you accept my Declaration of Love. You should know that I have always dreamed of having a beautiful girl from my hometown. And see how that has come to pass? Despite herself, his candor moved her. He thinks I'm beautiful. She folded the letter and inserted it back into the envelope holding it in her hands as she gazed toward the window. Try as she might, Nicoletta could not conjure memories of this man. She ambled onto the balcony and placed her hand gently on the rail. This was where he first noticed me. Orazio's big brother brought her several photos of him from New York City. He was so handsome with a thick mane of black hair, smiling at the camera, the city skyline as his backdrop. Nicoletta! He's a nice boy and a hard worker. Trust me, write him back. Then she spotted a photo of a teenage boy and asked, Who is he? You silly girl, that's Orazio. But he looks so different. This young man was a world away from the sophisticated guy she saw in his recent photos. The photo before her was of a shy boy, seemingly afraid of his own shadow. Nicoletta scanned her memories and recalled seeing that handsome boy walking by each day. He passed their house as she waited on the balcony for her brother Piero to come home from work. Although he seemed shy, he always paused to look up at her. She recalled thinking he was very sweet and gentle, not like so many other guys whose bravado steamrolled anyone in their way. No, Orazio was different. As the memories washed over her, Nicoletta rested in her decision to correspond with this man in New York. Suddenly he was familiar to her, no longer a stranger from a faraway place. He was the same boy who gazed at her from afar. Somehow, it seemed less crazy to write to him and carry on this love affair of words. And so, this orphan girl dared to dream. Perhaps there are happy endings after all.
0: Wow. Thank you very much. Your father, Orazio, who's in New York, sees a photograph of your mother, Nicoletta, in Italy, and I hope I pronounced those right. Yes. And they fall in love. He sends her this letter. He asks permission to write her. Do you think that kind of exchange would be possible in our modern society?
1: I really don't think so. I mean, in some ways, it's happening every day with people meeting online, corresponding through all these match services. and But at some point, they meet up right and the strange thing about this was that there was no there's no indication that my mother even wanted to hear from this guy. It wasn't like she signed up for a service to match her up with a, a man and, and he did the same. This was out of the blue. And really, you know, she describes it as as the most outrageous thing she had ever heard. Like, who is this guy? Those words were really hers, you know, and that kind of indignation, like, why would I want to do that? I don't think it could happen like that. And especially because they didn't meet for two years,
0: Part of your father's inspiration was the desire to find a wife from the town he immigrated from. Why do you think he felt more comfortable with a Southern Italian woman over an American-born or raised woman?
1: That's such a great question. I remember him telling me the story of a couple of dates that he went on when he was living in New York City. And, you know, he was fixed up by his sister, Lily. And these were all girls that were from Italian families but American born, so a very different cultural experience. My father was 20 years old when he left Italy, so he was born and raised in Italy, and the American girls were just so foreign to him, and he really wanted somebody that was more like my mother, I suppose, but somebody who was more simple, in valuing family and love the few dates he went on they they wanted to be taken out to fancy dinners they were very much about where he worked and what he did and money always comes into it and it really turned him off i
0: thought it was the cooking (laughs) <laughs> so i, I want to warn readers this book will make you crave italian food <laughs> well eventually
1: it was to her detriment because he never wanted to go out to dinner take her out to dinner because he liked her food so much <laughs>
0: your mother she lost both her parents at a young age and she lived through the fascist regime in italy and post-war poverty did she talk about how she survived and did she like
1: america She did talk about how she survived. I think some of my most vivid memories of childhood was her telling me the stories about what it was like to lose her parents. She effectively lost them at the same time. Uh, She was six years old, seven perhaps, and her mother died of an acute asthma attack. Her father had already gone away for work and never came back because he died while he was away. And so her broken heart, was a big part of her entire childhood experience. And then when the war broke out, that was part of the reason why she didn't see her father and why he never was able to come back. He couldn't travel back to Italy. He was in, on the island of Rhodes, you know, and then he became sick and died. So the war years, took her out of her very privileged life with loving parents that doted on her and dropped her in a place where she was standing in food lines as an eight or nine-year-old girl trying to make sense of all that had happened, all the change that had happened in her life while still having a loving family, loving brother that was still with her, and a loving cousin that just took her in. So yeah, I mean, she talked about those images of childhood, the struggle, but also the, the incredible love from her aunts and her cousin and her brothers. And once she got to America, she liked it very, very much. It was a dream for her. Not to say that it wasn't filled with struggle and trying to learn a new culture and a new language. That was tough too.
0: You mostly steer away from the political and moral aspects of World War II and focus on how it impacted everyday people. Was it hard to keep Italy's role in World War II from overtaking the story?
1: Yeah, that question was really, I had to think about that quite a bit. In the first draft of the book, I I spoke very little about World War II and Mussolini in particular. And it was one of my colleagues, fellow teachers, a history teacher, who said, you need to place this in context. You need to talk more about World War II and Mussolini because people don't necessarily know who he is, just that he was the fascist leader of, of Italy during that time. And as I was writing and researching It was very dry, you know, the the facts of the war, the things that we know about Nazism and fascism. You know, we learned in our history classes, and I felt that it was taking away from the story I really wanted to tell. So what I worked hard at was placing my mother and father in that history, how it felt to have food rationing, how it felt to lose jobs, how it felt to be fearful of the soldiers that were in the area, the Nazis and the fascists, you know. But I also, I, I learned a great deal about why Mussolini was, what he had done to, to Southern Italy in particular, economically, how it just went downhill for all of Italy because of, of his policies and and because of how he, he invaded, he wanted to make a new Roman Empire. I, I really didn't know that until I started re- re- researching this book and, um, you know, the sanctions that other countries put upon Italy because of his aggressive behavior. I mean, I learned a great deal, but I really wanted it to be about these two people who found each other despite all of the, the strife and the pains of World War II.
0: Your mother's family, and you mentioned previously, she, she came from a privileged family, and the family that was left behind, her brothers, they saw that their status was higher than your
1: father's family.
0: Did World War Two level the playing field in that regard?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, my two uncles were very well-educated. When my mother was I, going into middle school, the, the school she was supposed to go to was taken over by the military, and she would have had to have gone an hour south to the city of Bari and it wasn't something for a girl that age to be able to do by herself and she didn't have people who would be able to take her she wasn't as educated as her two brothers and nor as her her parents were and so as an adult you know even though she came from an educated family and and Hungered for education. Still to this day, she reads voraciously at ninety-one. You know, she's just uh, she's so well-read. But it did level the playing field. She was she was no longer in a privileged family. She was from a privileged family, but they were economically in the same place as my my father's family.
0: Could this marriage have happened if both families were still in Italy in the hierarchy of the pre-war era?
1: I don't think so. I think my mother's older brother, Zio Mauro, would have have put his foot down and not allowed it.
0: Your parents both worked hard and long hours, yet they managed to build a strong family bond, both in New York and with their relatives in Italy. They raised four children who all thrived. What was the key? You know,
1: it's it's interesting. I think another very profound memory, uh, or image, not not even just a memory. An image was of my parents standing at the kitchen sink. Strange, right? But my mother would be washing the dishes, and my father stood right beside her, drying them and putting them away. And this is something you wouldn't see a man in the 50s and 60s doing, you know. And in fact, my uncles used to make fun of him because he was doing women's work. And what that showed me from a very young age was the partnership they were equals. And even to this day in my relationship, I took from that. They did what was in their area of strength. So my mother, she kept the books. That was her strength. My father, he went out and, and uh, maintained the home and, and built things. And, you know, so they, they both did what they, were, what they were skilled at. And it didn't matter. Um, if it was women's work or men's work, according to my aunts and uncles. It didn't matter what other people said from outside. They valued the contribution from their partner.
0: That's uh, <laughs> something for all of us to live by. Your mother was a working mom in a time period when that was not a popular choice. Was there less stigma in the immigrant community for women who work?
1: Certainly not within my extended family. I remember we spent a great deal of time with with my aunts and uncles and and my cousins so we were all in the same neighborhood we could walk to each other's houses and but I would overhear things right so I could hear my aunts you know at the table saying things about my mother about oh look what he's wearing if she wasn't working she could take care of him like I still remember I wore I was wearing this this little these shorts and this shirt that I really wanted to wear they were brand new but I had grown out of them and I insisted on wearing those things <laughs> and my mother was like fine you can wear it and they were With me right there as if I was not in the room saying, well, if she wasn't working, you know, she would have bought him clothes that fit him. And so they would constantly put my mother down for working.
0: You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Mario Del Olio, reading from his latest memoir, Letters from Italy. Coming up, Mario reads about his parents' first in-person meeting and talks about writing process. All right, we're back. Mario, go ahead and read your second piece.
1: My father had just traveled to France uh, on a ship and took a train all the way from France down to his hometown in Bichelia. It was overnight. He hopped off the train too early, and this is where it continues. It was only 6 a.m. when he arrived. He knocked gently on the door, but no one seemed to stir. He knocked again with more authority, and he heard a woman's voice cautiously ask, Chi è? Who is it? He was sure he had woken her up. Sono Orazio dall'America. It's Orazio from America. I just arrived moments ago. Si, si, Orazio, just a minute. I will be right there. Antonietta yelled out as she grabbed her house dress. She slipped it on and headed to the door. She poked her head into Nicoletta's bedroom and said, Nicoletta, wake up. Orazio is here. What? He can't be. It's much too early. Quickly, Nicoletta, fix your hair while I let him in. I look terrible. I can't let him see me like this. You've been waiting for two years, cara. What does it matter that you have sleep in your eyes? You have love in your heart hurry now. Everything was happening so quickly, and Nicoletta was still trying to shake her mind from her slumber. She would have liked to run a brush through her hair, but there was no time. She could hear him coming her way, so she pinched her cheeks to make them red and ran her fingers through her hair. I can't believe he's here at last. I hope he thinks I'm pretty. As excited as she was, Nicoletta could not bring herself to get out of bed. She sat up and quietly listened through the door. Nicoletta straightened the covers just as the door opened. There he was, in the flesh. He was more handsome in person than in his photos. He crossed the room in three steps and leaned down. Their first kiss was pure and chaste, but full of untapped passion. Orazio sat on the bed beside Nicoletta, There was so much he wanted to say, but the words wouldn't come. The eloquence of their letters rendered them mute in person. So they made small talk. You look beautiful, Nicoletta. I can't believe I'm actually here with you. Oh, Razio, I look terrible. I didn't even get to fix my hair. Not to me, my love. At this moment, you are the most beautiful girl in the world.
0: Lovely. Your parents were engaged before they met in person. As a modern American child, what were your thoughts when you first heard about this postal romance?
1: I heard this story over and over again as I was growing up. So it wasn't, it didn't occur to me that it was unusual as a little boy. But when I look back on it, I'm like, arranged marriage? Basically, it was. I mean, no one arranged it for them, but they, they did this without seeing each other. I don't think I could go go through with anything like that. It's like, that's crazy.
0: <laughs> How many years did you think about these letters before committing them to a book?
1: For many, many years, I knew these letters existed and uh, I had seen them. Uh, my mother had shown them to me and my mother promised them to me. I'm the only one out of my siblings who speaks Italian, so it was obvious that I should get them so that I could read them and share them with my my siblings. But when After my father died, uh, she discovered the letters she wrote to him. I had always seen the letters he wrote to her that she had kept. And recently, I guess it was about five years ago, uh, my mother said, I'm not gonna wait till I die to give these to you, you should have them now. And so she handed me the stack of letters and, and I said, mom, why don't you read them to me? And I took my iPhone out and I sat it on the table and she just began to read. And she would go off on tangents. She'd read a line or two and then give me the background information about what was happening in her life or in his life. And after I listened to this first letter, I was like, this is a story. This is a book. And I had just written uh, my first two books. I had written a memoir about surviving a sailing accident. So the bug had bitten me. Like, I, I realized that I really loved telling stories, and I liked writing them down. And that was new to me. You know, I've, I've been a musician and a teacher for all my career, but never considered myself a writer. When my mother started telling these stories, and I had it all on on tape, I was like, this this story needs to be told. It was quite natural. I mean, it took me several years to get it all together, but I think it was after the first letter read, I was like, yep, has to be done.
0: Are there any memoirs that you've read that inspired you?
1: It's funny, I was thinking, I I read the memoir of, of, or the biography of Pope Francis, and uh, I found that so, so exciting for me, learning about somebody so famous and hearing about his life really inspired me. But honestly, it really didn't influence this book in particular. I remember looking at letters saying, How do I fit these into the story? I think one of my most difficult challenges was you know, the, the stories are in a certain order, right? The, these letters are chronological, but you know, they're only one part of their nearly 60 years of marriage, right? So I didn't know how to place them in the book. And so I was looking at other books that had letters and a couple of people had had mentioned some and I decided to just write the story and place them throughout the book in a different way, not necessarily in the order they were written, just to kind of frame the story of their lives. For example, when my grandmother died, my father's mother died, I placed the letter that she had written to my mother right in that section because it, it spoke of their loving relationship. This orphaned girl now has a mother-in-law that takes that place. So I thought that was an important place for it. When my father is missing my mother after they he has to return to the United States after they marry, talking about them being reunited, I placed that letter after his death. In many ways, it was my own creation. <laughs>
0: It is interesting the way that you put the letters in there. And when I was reading through it, I remember thinking it kind of takes you back to the beginning and it, it helps reinforce the love story. And I think that's why, even though it's a memoir of your family, it feels like a love story. Now that you've written this memoir about your family, are you planning additional biographical stories? It seems to me like there's a lot of material you could mine there. <laughs>
1: Yes, my mother was telling my mother again as a, t- a storyteller and she she told me a story about my great great grandfather, my fa- on my father's side. And she she placed him and this would have been in around 1860s, maybe maybe a little bit before. And this character of this man, he was supposedly so very handsome that they used to call him the beautiful face in in the italian dialect but he was very lazy and because he was so so handsome that he used to get away with anything other making other people do the work for him and sort of that tom sawyer effect and i thought what a great character i think my next book is going to be a historical fiction based on on that character around the time of the unification of italy
0: well i look forward to that that sounds very interesting educational as well as interesting did the book create any family tensions that you didn't expect and do you think orasio and nicoletta did she like the book
1: She loved the book. In fact, I have a a video of her when I gave the book to her in person. She was the first one to get a copy, of course. And she's just crying. And I said to her, did you ever think that there would be a book about your life with with dad? And she just cried. She's like, I've never, I never thought that it was anything more special to anyone else. And at 91 years old, she has trouble sleeping, and she says to me, when I have trouble sleeping at night, I pick up the book, which still sits on her nightstand. She says, I pick up the book, and I read the happier moments of my life with your father. So she is, her heart is so full because of the book. And I think my father would, too. He would love the, the, the story, because um, he was a storyteller, too. And, you know, I think as far as tensions, there are some unpleasant stories in there and you know there are family members who might not be happy with it there was one cousin who said i don't think that a particular passage about his grandfather he said i don't know that that should have been in the book and i i said it's hard to read difficult things about people we love he said but one of the most important reasons for having these trials in the book is to show that that's the reality of life and it really shows the strength of my parents and the entire family in overcoming those trials. Otherwise, it's just a fantasy. And true love is not about fantasy. True love is going through the tough times as well as the joyful times.
0: Very well said. So many ways, this book was a gift to your mom.
1: Oh, it absolutely was a gift to my mom. To this day, she says, this is the most wonderful gift you could have possibly given me.
0: That is so sweet. Now we're going to talk a little bit about writing process. You know, we have a lot of writers who listen to Upwelling. How often do you write?
1: Well, I I must confess that since uh, I moved cross-country from New York to California uh, just in the last six months, I haven't put pen to paper or to keyboard, if you will, since I've moved. But before that, I would say that I don't write every day. I do most of my writing during the summers. I am a school teacher, teach full time. So vacation times are my writing times. And during vacation, I'm very disciplined about that. I'm freshest in the morning. I would sit at the computer and write for three hours with you know occasional breaks to walk around, to putter in the garden, clear my head. But most of my writing happens in the morning and I do that every morning. Uh, until I get my first draft.
0: Do you have a dedicated space?
1: I don't, I like to move around. I even did that when uh, I had to teach on Zoom during uh, the uh, COVID epidemic. Uh, So I would find a comfortable chair with a nice view, put the laptop down on my lap. When I get bored, I'd move to another space. Uh, I think being stimulated by different views, different environments really helps me.
0: That's good to hear. Do you write it all and then go back or do you edit as you go?
1: I write it all. One of the best pieces of of advice I got from a colleague of mine uh, about writing was uh, when I was writing my doctoral dissertation and I was sharing with her that I was getting stuck and, you know, the typical writer's block, of course. And she said, don't sit and try to write your introduction, don't sit and try to write in order you write at the moment what is in your head and you just you just write she said, then you can reorganize it later or throw it out or completely edit it and make it something new but at least you're writing you're getting thoughts down and it prevents writer's block and that is absolutely what I do
0: I think we kind of have the answer to this question which was how do you find the balance between teaching music and writing and it sounds like it's uh basically based on the month of the year
1: <laughs> it totally is but i will say that once i have the first draft you know as all of us know that's that's only the beginning right and so the editing um and the rewrites happen during the school year you know i can do that but the creation happens when i'm not working
0: <laughs> and have you started your next book
1: i have and and again i i Uh, It's only at the beginning stages, but I've begun it, and I actually have another book that I'm starting to write, which is more of a memoir uh, and a journey of my own um, after a car accident that I had in, in my college years and how that transformed my life. So very different styles of book, but it's one I want to write.
0: That's great. Before we go, are you planning any local public readings or tours?
1: At this point, uh, I, since it is the end of the school year, I think I'm, I'm going to be setting up uh, a few things down uh, in Santa Rosa, hopefully in Mendocino. Um, I'm right now searching for a couple of libraries and uh, writing organizations that might be open to hosting me.
0: And where can people purchase letters from Italy?
1: So in, in Cloverdale, where I live, there's the Plank Coffee Shop, also in Healdsburg, and Sonoma Trading Company in Cloverdale, and also in Windsor. Uh, and of course, uh, big retailers like Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank
0: you for joining us for Season 2 of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with award-winning writer Mario Del Olio about his new memoir, Letters from Italy. Elizabeth Kirkpatrick-Vrenios will read poetry from her upcoming release, Concerto in the Shape of an Empty Frame. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. My next guest is a professor emerita from American University in Washington, D.C., where she chaired the vocal and music departments. Elizabeth Kirkpatrick-Vrenios traveled the world as a soloist and is now the artistic director of the Redwoods Opera. Her writing is featured in Tupelo Press's 3030 Challenge, and in a list of journals and anthologies too long to list. She's been nominated for a Pushcart Prize twice. She's published two collections of poetry. Her next collection, Concerto, in the shape of an empty frame, will be released by Kelsey Books in October 2023. Welcome, Elizabeth.
2: Thank you. Uh,
0: Please read your first selection, Communion.
2: Be happy to. Communion. Andante gracioso. My hands heavy as prayers, divide the yolks from the whites, the stirring spoon a silver sigh. But I cannot forget my own son's freshly broken body as if I had spent the whole day on my hands and knees crawling through the hours. Our sorrow, beyond void and hunger, has been too deep to swallow. We longed for the taste of avolemino soup, to feel the in deep Scour of lemon, pungent, tart, and acrid. Yet somehow tonight, this task of creating a difficult soup works its way by accident to perfection. Our table, set for four, contains an empty bowl, for we agree he is with us still, lucent in our spoons.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. The grief and communion is palpable the loss of your son is a recurring theme in your poetry. Do these
2: expressions relieve or relive the grief? That's an interesting question. Um, Lots of people ask me if that's the case, and it always seems to relieve the pain when you write about it. If I were not writing, I would be reliving it all the time. But to be able to put it down on paper feels like untying a knot the pain is like a knot in you and every time you write about it you untie the knot that happens to be there in the center and the knot keeps coming back about different things in this case it was about the algalemno soup that the family requested for at least a month every night after Nick was went down on the Pan Am flight And it was the only thing that we could get down. And so night after night, I made the soup. And it seemed to untie the knot for me, the cook. As you're going through
0: your day, is there a catalyst that makes you sit down and write a poem about your son?
2: You know, I thought about that. And I said, you know, it's almost never in the daytime when I write. I always write at dawn. Just before everything wakes up, I wake myself up quite early. And I sit and write and meditate, and the minute I respond to the daily call or the coffee or something, the meditation goes. I, I, I respond to a poem I've just read or something that emerges from my journal because I write every morning. Uh, it, or it's a thought that passes through my mind, but it's always early in the morning. Elizabeth has a second
0: selection she's going to read for us called Cairn.
2: Karen, Before I read Cairn, I just wanted you to know that this particular poem is written with uh, 270 words, which totally match the 270 stones that are in the Cairn, responding to the 270 people who perished on Pan Am 103. So I just wanted to make that clear. It was astounding to me, once I put the 270 words in, how long the poem was. It feels like it goes on and on and on, and it's meant to. So I wanted to warn the listeners of that. Cairn, lacrimoso. A gift from the people of Scotland, the cairn in Arlington Cemetery is made of 270 blocks of red sandstone quarried from Lockerbie in memory of the 270 people lost in the Pan Am 103 bombing in 1988. Grief is not buried here, only stones stacked, stacked in a cairn, stones carved, fit end-to-end, Scottish stones, each stone like the other, laid round over round, end on end, bombed despair, Stones laid back to back, each a wound, each a life broken. Identical stones, stones stacked to fit, wind to wind, flower to flower. Each world tips over, back, back, and back again. Carved stones fit end to end, fragments of a bomb, fragments of sand, Fragments split from lost gold of grass, from lost depth of spring moss, from loss, fragments of dreams, mortar forgetting air, love mortared in tears, in soaring seeds, mortared fragments balanced end on end, mortared endless dirges of stones, dirges of memory balanced at edge of sky, Each stone, a life ended, my son, student, mother, child, father, pilot, daughter, brother, stewardess, teacher, saint, angel, human, families around the dinner table, bombed, edges mortared, moments reigning over singing insistence of grief. Moments peeling away clouds, back fitting to back, bone to bone, wing to wing, heart to heart, stone piled like bones, bombed, broken, burst fragments of stars fall, tip back over back, gather in cairns, gather in grasses, gather in stones, fall from light into light, death into death, body over body, over body.
0: Thank you, Elizabeth. Was your son one of the people they were able to find? Because I understand that, that some of the some of the bodies, they were never able to recover.
2: Uh, we were waiting to hear from them at the time, waiting to hear uh, when he was recovered. And it took perhaps two weeks before we heard. And later I learned that the bodies that were identifiable, were responded to very early on. And the longer you had to wait, the less identifiable it was. They had asked us to go to the dentist to get their records of their teeth and and other things in order to determine who they were, which shocked me. But we had his dental records and he was eventually identified. So yes, there were He was identifiable. I don't know how much of him was because we were never allowed to see the casket. It was never allowed to be open. That was something I wrote about, too, the closed casket, that we could never see him or touch him, but he was there inside. People
0: who lose a child, they share a lifetime of mourning. Do you find it helps to redirect that loss into an artistic form? Oh,
2: I thought about this, and I said, How lucky are we, writers and poets and musicians, that we can put our grief into art? We can create the pain that will help relieve ourselves and help relieve our audiences. I found that the core of grief is almost too much to bear if you can't create art. And for that, I am really, really grateful. I had a concert very shortly after Nick was killed, and it was in Carnegie Recital Hall. It was a a, a solo music concert, and the composer was there. He had written a piece on children, and there were seven poems, and the last poem was saying goodbye, goodbye to a son. I can still hear it in my ears. It was very poignant. I think it was saying goodnight, Good night, but it was really saying goodbye. And during rehearsal, I would rehearse and stop, stop singing and and we'd all kind of choke up and then we'd do it again and stop, and we'd all choke up, and the composer said, "You can do it." I, he thought more of me than I did, and come the performance. I sang that last song and managed to get through it. But at the end, the pianist was sobbing, and the and the the composer was sobbing. It was very difficult, but that was a relief, a release of this of this tension that we had all held for. Well, it was only a month. It was new tr- grief, and there we were able to release that in performance. It was a it was an amazing event, kind of scary because I didn't know if I was going to break down in the middle of the song, but I didn't. I had to think of cabbages or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Something. So some people might think you're picking at a scab, and I guess the big question, is there a scab, and and is there a choice?
2: A scab implies a wound that is not deep, and there is no choice for an artist to express the deep wounds. The scab's aren't really there. It's a scar, not a scab. I I thought that was an interesting question. You can't function the same afterwards as you could before. The world has just changed, and that's what makes the scar, and that's what heals the scar. We go on just as we've been, but we're different. We carry something on our bodies, on our minds, in our hearts. That is a scar, and a scab no longer exists.
0: Okay. There are many memorials for the victims who lost their lives in Lockerbie. And have, have you visited all of the memorials? Do think, they help?
2: Uh, I visited uh, Lockerbie and, and the one in Arlington Cemetery that I wrote about, and the various, There's a, there are several others, but it really doesn't help because it's a place. And I find that I turn off at a grave or in a place because I feel as if I'm expected to feel something. And surprisingly enough, I won't feel it if people are expecting me to feel it, if that makes sense. Um, You feel it in your body, in in the inside, and you can walk away from it changed. So you do change when you go to a memorial and you sense it but it's on a such a deep level that you can hardly recognize it on a different subject
0: elizabeth is going to read a third poem riding home
2: in your white valiant after the opera yes this was written it's actually True. This was when I first met my husband-to-be, and we used to drive from Stockton to San Francisco with a whole group of people to see the opera, and this time it was just with him driving in his white valiant to see the opera at the San Francisco Opera House. Riding home in your white valiant after the opera. Vivace ma non troppo. I remember that ride back from the city when we stopped to swing around light poles like children, light pooling all around us. That spring love budded in us. That delicious spring love fell into us, and gentle and brilliant as glass. We were green and gentle and as resilient as as grass, moon descending out of itself. The moon? Was there a moon? I can't remember, only that the stars sprinkled us with sun. I can only remember sugar. And were there street lights? Did we kiss in the parking lot? Was there a moon or street lights? I can't remember kisses, only dancing, light poles, and that ride back home from the opera. Thank you, Elizabeth. This is a lovely
0: bit of nostalgia. It feels like a romance movie, and as a reader, I wanted more. How do you decide as a writer that a poem
2: is finished? This was written on a form by Jericho Brown, and it was an interesting form that requires seven stanzas, and it requires taking a word from, from the sentence before, And you could only do it in seven stanzas. And it has to be written in couplets. And so I knew when I came to the end of the seventh stanza, I couldn't go any further. But by having to pair each line with the line before, it created a mood. It created what I wanted to say. And this particular one, I knew when I finished the poem, it was finished but I can tell you I have a lot of poems that I keep scratching away at that are never finished.
0: Write on a regular schedule or just when inspiration
2: hits you? <laughs> I write every morning. But I can tell you, if if you ask me if, if inspiration hits me, mm-mm, that muse does not visit me every day. Some days that muse wants to sleep in, and it does. <laughs> <laughs> but if i read if I read first and I get inspired by other poets then it seems to open the gate a little bit so that words come out but uh, that muse is not always there no okay I go through great valleys <laughs> what is your revision process
0: for poetry or is there a process?
2: Uh, revise, yes. Uh, I read and reread, and I change the tense. I change the, the way I have put the, the stanzas together. I change the words. I add words. I cut words. And then I wad up the poem and throw it in a trash can. <laughs>
0: that sounds like
2: my revision process. <laughs> Are you planning any local public readings or tours? When the book comes out... Then I will. Right now, I can't do anything without the book. And it's not going to be coming out till the end of the year with Kelsey books. Mm -hmm. But I will plan some readings for certain. Yes.
0: So how would people find out about those? Um,
2: When the book comes out, there will be some publicity. I will let people know through Facebook, et, et cetera, And they have a channel where you do let people know about the book. The book publisher has not planned any readings as yet, but I suspect that they will.
0: And I know they can't purchase Concerto yet, but where can they purchase your poetry collections, and can they sign up in advance for Concerto?
2: I suppose you could sign up in advance for Concerto, but Kelsey Books has stated that not until the end of the year are they ready to accept people who want uh, to sign up in advance. You can purchase my books on Amazon, or you can go to your local bookstore and order it. And our bookstore has copies of both the books that I have. One is Empty the Ocean with a Thimble, which was the one I just finished. And the first book is Special Delivery, which was written about Pan Am 103 and the journey that we made to pick Nick Up and The Journey Through Grief those are my three books and this particular one concerto for an empty frame in the shape of an empty frame is all written in the in the form of a concerto with three movements and all of the poems have a musical indication at the beginning of them taking me through my empty frames of my life which are three so it's three movements oh that's great
0: thank you Elizabeth for joining me on Upwelling
2: oh thank you
0: You've been listening to Dr. Mario Del Olio and Elizabeth Kirkpatrick Vrenios talk about their newest releases. Our next episode of Upwelling is August 30th. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts.